Hey, good morning, Rev. Good morning. My name is Preston, and I've uh, been going here for about a year, and I'm going to wrap up the series on uh, relationships that Brent has titled Devoted to the Mess, which I, I love that title. I think that really captures the essence of what relationships are and can be and will be. They are messy, and we are to be devoted to them. Um, Brent's talked about several things that would be almost too hard to summarize, but um, you know, he began talking about how Christ went to the ends of the earth, spiritually speaking, to reach people and bring people to himself. He went out of his way to be devoted to people, and therefore, we should be devo- devoted to each other. And uh, last week, I just loved how we, we ended, or not quite, because today's the end, but we talked about uh, the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus is devoted to us. That is the foundation of our relationships is the fact that Jesus, while we were messy, while we were screwed up, Jesus walked out of a grave to display his devotion to us. And that is the foundation of all of our relationships and our devotion to each other. Um, Today, I have the interesting task of talking about marriage, (laughs) Uh, which is really scary to talk about marriage, to try and say that this is what marriage is all about. Um, I, I've titled this message, Devoted to Christ in Marriage. And, and as we'll see, that I think the title will become more clear as we, as we talk, because I think marriage is, it has more to do with being devoted to Christ and has more to do with Christ's devotion to us than it, than it does have to do about you know, two spouses trying to hammer this thing out. Um, if, if Christ is not the, at the center of a marriage relationship, then it's not a Christ-honoring marriage relationship. So we're going to talk a lot about um, Jesus. I mean, if, if I was, uh, if I'd been married maybe a couple years, I, I think I would have a lot more confidence, and I, I think the marriage talk would look a lot different. I would talk about what marriage is supposed to be and how husbands need to get their act together and wives need to do this and that, and I think I'd have a lot more confidence. But I'm, I've been married almost 14 years now, and, and I, I'm just now realizing that I don't really – I'm just trying to figure this thing out. I'm like, a, if you're married here or, you know, maybe get engaged, I'm just, I'm a fellow soldier trying to, trying to figure this out. Um, I, I could fill the morning with uh, um, kind of like the stupid things I've done as a husband, but there, a few years ago, um, it was a, a week before our anniversary, and I was trying to, you know, with all the stresses of life, trying to plan like some cool anniversary thing for my wife, and Plans don't really come together, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do something special, going to surprise her, you know, and the busyness of life kept caving in, and, and finally, you know, um, woke up the day uh, of our anniversary, and um, I, 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 I totally forgot it was our anniversary. <laughs> it got, got to like noontime, you know, and nobody's saying anything, and just totally forgot we, in fact, we even invited some people over for dinner. We weren't even like really good friends, just acquaintances, you know, had, had them over for dinner. And, and it was about 9 o'clock at night. We fall into bed. We get ready to do our Netflix routine. And all of a sudden, you, you know, have you ever like had a near drowning experience, you know, where you're just like, <sighs> and, and, I, and I turn to my wife literally like, oh, my word. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, what? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, she, she has been playing me the whole time to see if I was going to remember, right? And she looks at me and says, what? And I go, I am, I, I am so sorry. I forgot that it was our anniversary. And she goes, I forgot too. And I was like, yes, yes. I'm not getting a divorce. This is awesome. Two spouses forgetting that they were married 13 years before that. But... Um, that was one of the most, yeah, God came through. God, God is present. Um, th- this is a marriage talk. It's not going to, let me just say before, I don't want to lose some of you who aren't married or don't even have a desire to be married. What I'm going to say this morning is applicable to you whether you're unmarried and maybe you will end up getting married or whether you're unmarried and will never get married or whether you're married now or maybe you've gone through marriage and have a broken marriage and you're looking back on marriage I, I truly believe that what I talk about this morning will be applicable for everybody. So to don't, don't check out. This is not just a limited talk on a certain number of people here. And let me say this too. This, I'm not going to give like a five-step how-to, how to improve your marriage type talk. I'm not going to talk about like conflict resolution or, or how to fight well, you know, or how to manage your money. Or, or I'm not going to give a sex talk, you know. Um, 
some of that will come in actually, but I'm not going to talk about parenting or all these other topics. These are all really, really good. These are, you, you should, if, you're, if you aspire to be married or you are married, these are things you should work through. But here's the thing, if you don't understand what marriage is and what marriage is not, those things are futile. If you don't understand the, God's purpose and goal of what marriage is for, then trying to figure out conflict re- resolution and money management, all that stuff is just, it's worthless if you don't understand the foundation. Like, it's like remodeling a house that has a foundation on sand. We've got to understand, first of all, that what, what is, what is, why did God create marriage? What's the purpose and design of marriage? And then, and then we can kind of talk about um, those other things. Let, let me begin by sharing four marriage myths Four myths about marriage, and then we're going to be in Ephesians 5, okay? Ephesians 5 is a, one of the main kind of marriage passages in the Bible. But let me, let me share four myths, myths about marriage. Number one, number one, marriage will make me happy. Marriage will make me happy. You ever hear that or, or feel that? Maybe you're, on the, on the, you're, you're single and you're just like, oh, if I can only be married, then, then I will be happy. Um, you know, a, a godly marriage might make you happy, might contribute to your happiness. A Christ-like marriage will probably make you holy, but there's no guarantee that marriage in and of itself will make you happy. And in fact, I would say that if, if you are like discontent and dissatisfied with life prior to being married, if you haven't found satisfaction in Christ while you're single, then you will probably be dissatisfied in your marriage. Marriage might contribute to your happiness if done with the right focus, right person, right, right goals, if you understand what marriage is all about. But marriage in and of itself, putting a ring on your finger, will not automatically make you happy. Number two, marriage uh, myth. Um, number two, uh, marriage will fix my lust. Marriage will fix my lust. Um, and this is, and, and you know, I, again, if it was a few years ago, I would have uh, said, you know, here, guys, I'm just going to talk to the guys now. But uh-uh, no, this, this, is, this is kind of a myth with all people that, you know, I struggle with sexual temptation. And if I just get married, then all that will go away. Marriage is like a, like a, like a finish line, right? If I can just get there, then I won't struggle anymore. That's a total myth. Um, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is better to marry than to burn, but he doesn't say that those who get married will never struggle with lust anymore, that those who get married won't struggle with sexual temptation anymore. Don't think that if you get married, then all of a sudden you will not struggle with sexual temptations anymore. If you don't, look, single or unmarried people, if you don't cultivate discipline in your life now in terms of sexual temptation, then it will kill you after you are married. Don't think that, hey, uh, if I can just get through, then I get married, then I won't. It's, it, if, if you don't put to death sexual sin now before you're married, it will put you to death after you get married. Marriage is not going to just solve um, your sexual temptations. And, and it, it, you know, I, I wish I could uh, do like a whole separate thing on this topic, uh, it's, almost, it's almost inadequate to treat it so quickly. Um, but, you know, the, uh, there's, no, there's no secret that, that pornography is like a major problem in society, both inside and outside the church. Um, and, you know, again, t- 10 years ago, it would have been, okay, guys, let's just talk about porn right now. But, I mean, the, the pornography addiction and, and habitual use among, among females has skyrocketed in the last 10 years, statistically. So this is relevant for everybody. Not only is it sin, obviously, okay, but if you don't conquer this now, before you're married, marriage will not take it away. It just won't. And apart from being sin, apart from being highly addictive, just statistically, right, just as much as like heroin and crack, apart from, apart from it being highly addictive, it will actually end up contributing to destruction in your marriage if you do not take care of this sin now. I mean, to put it, can I, put it, can I just be totally frank? <laughs> As if I'm not being frank enough. But. 
If you train yourself to have sex with a computer screen, you will not be able to enjoy sex with another person when the time is right. For, ver- for, for layers and layers of reasons, make this a top priority if, not if, but since it's a struggle for at least some of you, if not a lot of you, you've got to conquer this now. Marriage will not solve it. Marriage will not solve it. In fact, if you don't take care of it now, you are actually destroying a, any sort of future intimacy you expect to have with a future spouse. The studies and evidence are overwhelming. Number three, third marriage myth. Um, marriage will solve my loneliness. And, and this one's tough because it seems like, it seems like, well, no, that isn't, that, isn't that what marriage is? A solution to human loneliness? And I, for years, I, I, I thought that this was true, that, you know, you walk through life, you're super lonely until you get married, and then you're not lonely anymore. I know a lot of people that are married and are super lonely. And I know a lot of people that are single and maybe even desire to be married, but they're, they're actually relationally fulfilled in life. Ma- marriage wasn't designed by God to solve human loneliness. In fact, I, 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 I looked at this a while back, and it's fascinating that when the Bible talks about rich, intimate, joyful, life-giving intimacy, like relational intimacy, do you know that it rarely says that that's found in marriage. It doesn't say it's not found in marriage, but it never says that if you want true, rich, deep, satisfying friendship or intimacy or relational fulfillment, then get married. The Bible never, there's one exception, we'll talk about that, but it rarely, if ever, says that. It does talk about relational intimacy in the context of friendship. Paul says, he tells the Thessalonians, uh, we are affectionately desirous of you. I mean, I, I've said that to my wife. I don't know if I've said it to my best friend. It'd probably freak him out. But Paul, Paul says, I'm affectionately desirous of you. And we were, talking about the apostles, we were ready to share with you our own selves because you have become so very dear to us. He tells Philemon, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Even the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I know this is read at a lot of weddings. Paul's not writing this specifically to married couples. In fact, a few chapters earlier in chapter 7, he, he, he kind of like elevated the single life saying, dude, here's where it's at, man. I mean, it's not wrong to get married, but single life, man, this is, this is where it's at. So this, this love chapter is just speaking of relationships as a whole. Um, David and Jonathan, okay? Uh, D- David talks about Jonathan. He says, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And, and this is why some people say David and Jonathan, you know, were gay. They had some sort of like broke back Masada affair, you know, behind Abigail's back or whatever, which is, which is just not, it's just not in the text. But what's, what's cool is, I mean, David can speak of deep, satisfying, unique, relational intimacy with his friend. And because of, we, we, we read this through such sexualized lenses from our culture, we say, oh, they must be having sex. Because two, two dudes can't talk like that. Well, that, that's the product of our culture. The, the Bible elevates same-gender friendship. So, so marriage, I don't, again, biblically, I don't think God designed marriage to say, you know what, you're going to be super lonely until you get married. No, no, you'll be super lonely until you learn how to engage in and cultivate unconditional, deep, satisfying friendships. And the deepest type of marriage is one, right, where, where you have that that, that carries over into marriage, where you have a deep, satisfying friendship with your spouse. Now, Genesis 2, some of you are thinking, well, what about Genesis 2? Genesis 2, you know, Adam, God says, tells Adam, you know, looking at Adam, hey, it's not good for man to be alone, right? So he creates Eve. And so that's where some people get this, you know, marriage is a solution to loneliness thing. But, you know, Eve, yeah, she, didn't, uh, she did end up marrying Adam. You know, they're the first, you know, they had a marriage. And um, but what's unique about that, okay, is that Eve isn't just Adam's wife. E- Eve's a, a, like the second human being, okay? So, so Adam was alone, not because he was just single and, you know, sick of living the frat life, you know? I mean, he, he, was, sing- he, was, he was like alone in the world. Like he's the only human on the planet, okay? He's like Will Smith and I Am Legend, right? Without the mutated humans or Tom Hanks and Castaway without Wilson, right? These are old. Is there a better, more recent... 
Interstellar, the dude on the planet for like 30 years? I don't know. Is there? An, I don't know if there's another more relevant. It was, uh, yeah. It freaked me out, but man. I, but then, yeah, so Adam, it's not good for man to be by himself, isolated from other humans. That, that's, that's the point of that passage. Not, it's not good for a man to be single, so give him a wife and he won't, be, he won't be alone anymore. Fourth myth about marriage. Fourth myth about marriage. I'm complete, or I'm incomplete, sorry. I'm incomplete until I get married. I'm incomplete. I'm, I'm not fully human, if you will. I haven't arrived at life until I get married. This... this this is a huge problem, I think, in the church, and it comes from us, married people. It is, it is a, one of the blind spots, I believe, in the church today that especially married people and just church culture as a whole, we make single people feel incomplete until they get married. We, like, you can experience full human flourishing apart from marriage. God, when he created humanity, he created everybody in his own image. We all possess the, the, the image of God, whether we're single or married or divorced or whatever. There, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We believe in a first-class gospel. There is no second-class citizens who embrace that gospel. Um, I mean, who is the obvious example of this? <laughs> guy named Jesus, right? I mean, single. And I mean, if he ever was a picture of a perfect human, okay, this is getting ridiculous. I mean, Jesus, okay? But he, he wasn't, he was, wasn't he never married. Paul was unmarried. Maybe he could have been either widowed or maybe even divorced. You know, we don't know. Um, I, and I, I really think that the church can create an idol out of marriage. And, you know, we, we do, we, I mean, think about it. We give the impression that the goal in life is to get married. And, the, and then, have kids. And, and, if you, and if you're not there, you, you haven't quite arrived yet. Even statements like, wow, she's so pretty. How come she hasn't found a husband yet? That, 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 is, that is so demeaning. Or it, there's not a lot of you grandparents out here but, or, or parents with, with older kids, you know, but seriously, don't ever, ever say, oh, honey, can't you just get married and give me some grandbabies? Would you, would you, I mean, seriously, would you ever want your grown-up child to get married? That, that's the reason they get married, is to give you grandbabies? You think that marriage is going to last? Look, nobody is incomplete. Nobody is incomplete if they have found Jesus. You're human, you find Jesus, boom, you've crossed the finish line. You are fully human. You can experience full human flourishing. There, there was a, um, <clears throat> I was in a community group at my church down south before I moved up here. And I remember we, we, the, the, the first day we started this, this gospel group, we call them community groups down there. And there was 15 people that showed up, okay? Yeah, right. Seven couples and then uh, one single guy. And, and, and I think 10 minutes into the meeting, he, he, got a, he got a phone call, right, and left. And I was like, oh, that was weird. You know, he bailed, you know. And, like, and it, it wasn't, you know, it was like after the fact I realized, oh my gosh, there were seven couples here you know, sharing prayer requests about babies and breast pumps and burp rags and all this stuff. And it didn't even, didn't even have a cl- didn't take the time to have a clue that our entire conversation and, and, and prayer requests and everything about it was so exclusive. So I, on behalf of the church, to all you, if you felt this, I apologize. We, we have created a church culture, I think. And this isn't just, this is actually, there's a lot of studies being done on this. That we've created a church culture that makes single people, especially 25, 30, 35-year-old single people, feel like second-class citizens of the church. You're not incomplete if you're not married. You are complete if you're a human who, have, who has found Jesus. Let's go to um, uh, Ephesians 5. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to be in... Uh, verses 22 to uh, 33, that's the big, this is the big marriage passage in uh, the New Testament, really, but especially in Paul's letters. Um, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Now, he- here's what I love, love, love about this passage. Yeah, this Bible's coming around. My, our pastor's hand-delivering Bibles. That's awesome. Um, here's, here's what I love about this passage um, is that 
It is so much, it, it is the marriage passage, right? I mean, if you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably familiar with this passage. If you've been married, you maybe had to memorize it or whatever. This passage is so much more about Jesus than it is about marriage. And I, I love how Christ-centered this passage is. In fact, of these, I don't know, what is it, 11 verses, 12 verses? There are two verses addressed to the wives, two, three addressed to the husband, and seven that describe Christ's love for the church. So, I mean, you cannot understand marriage apart from being enraptured by Jesus' self-giving love for his people. It's like Paul, every time he starts talking about wives or husbands, he just, he just all of a sudden gets all theological talking about Jesus and his undying love for us. And he comes back, oh yeah, and, and wives, you need to do this because Jesus, and then, oh yeah, and husbands, you need, you need to, you know, because Jesus, and he's just so enthralled with the work of Christ. Let, let me, let's read this, and I want to try and point this out to you. Um, in, in verse 22, uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, uh, his body and is himself its savior. And then, and then he kind of brings it back again. Now, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on this like two-verse tangent about Christ's love for the church. And he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. I, I think that's actually just talking about Jesus, Jesus in the church here. I don't think, I know I've heard some husbands, you know, I wash my wife with the word, you know. And I, I don't think, I think this is really just unique to Jesus in the church here. Um, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself. That doesn't really work for marriage. Uh, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy, the church might be holy and blameless without blemish. And then, and then he kind of goes back to the husbands here. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, his own body, as, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for nobody ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as, here we go again, Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, and this is fascinating what he does with this one flesh verse. Therefore, man shall, not, or man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But look what Paul says. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He takes one of the most central marriage verses and says, that ain't even talking about marriage. That's talking about Jesus and his bond is covenant faithful devotion to the church. Oh yeah, yeah. So however, each one of you love his wife as himself, let the wife see that she respects her husband. This passage is primarily about Jesus's relentless, undying love for his people. And, and I, if you've had or are having a really bad marriage, and there's got to be some in here who maybe have had a, an abusive spouse, an unfaithful spouse, unfaithful husband, unfaithful wife, an unlovable spouse. Maybe it's ended in divorce or, or you're in the thick of it. I, I, really, I really hope you'll look at this passage and see the profound love that Jesus has for you. See the tender undying love that Jesus has for you. A love that no earthly spouse will be able to match up to. Because when Paul talks about marriage, he just immediately launches into Christ's undying love for his people. Let me give you a definition of marriage. And, and I, I, there's several you can give, okay? I think this is one that's concise. I think it captures what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians. Marriage is a tangible participation in and display of God's covenant relationship with his people. Marriage is a tangible participation in and display of God's covenant relationship with his 
people. And there's all sorts of stuff we can add, right? I mean, one man, one woman, you know, and from different families. Okay? I mean, but as far as the basic theological point, marriage is a tangible participation in and display of God's covenant relationship with his people. The health of a marriage will be determined by how central Christ is to the marriage. The happiness of a marriage will be determined by how Christ-like each spouse is toward the other person. The success of a marriage will be shaped by the outward focus, the outward focus that a marriage has just as much as or maybe even more than the inward focus of the marriage. In other words, a marriage that does nothing more than just sits around focusing on improving its marriage will become healthy but will be profoundly irrelevant to to God's kingdom. Because we are on mission. God set us here to be on mission to serve his kingdom, to further his kingdom, to pick up our crosses and die with Jesus for the sake of reaching the world. And marriage should do nothing more than propel that and and throw gasoline on that fire. A marriage will become profoundly irrelevant if it doesn't keep its focus on furthering the mission of God. That's why we're here. Again, marriage is a tangible participation in and display of God's covenant relationship with his people. That, that's why there's no marriage in the resurrection. Some people freak out about that. My, my kids don't like that verse, actually. The Matthew 22, you know, the, 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 uh, there'll be no, what does he say? He says, in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And some people say, oh, that's going to be so lame. And it's like, well, it depends on your perspective. You see, marriage is a shadow It's a mirror. It's a shadow of of God's love for us. And so when that love, when God, when we are reunited in resurrected bodies without sin and perfect relationship with our creator, there will be no no, no need for human marriages. Marriage foreshadows our ultimate relationship with God. Our creator. Marriage is not the goal. Jesus is the goal. Marriage is one means by which we reflect and participate in the work of Christ in the world. And I, and I so, I, am I being too negative on marriage? <laughs> I, I'm a happily married guy, okay? I, I, I think my wife is smoking hot, okay? And she's not here, so she don't tell her I said that. I, we have a great time together. We, look, we, we fight, we argue, we have all this stuff, you know. And, um, but I, I truly, I truly love my wife. I enjoy my wife. But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful my wife loves Jesus more than me. I, I don't care how physically attracted I am to my wife. If she wasn't engaged in the mission of God, she would not be attractive to me. I mean, physical beauty has its place, you know, enjoying each other, all that stuff is cool, but she loves Jesus. That's the most attractive thing about her. Some of you are thinking about getting married or dating, whatever, like that. If, uh, If you can't say, you know what, they love Jesus more than me, then they will do, end up probably creating an idol out of you. You've get, that's number one criteria. Your, your spouse must love Jesus more than you. Let me, let's do two things here in Ephesians 5 because um, there's so much here we can unpack. Let me just, I want to just focus on two commands here. Um, one command given to the wife and one command given to the husband. There's actually two given to the wives. They kind of overlap though. One, uh, wives submit to your husbands and then in verse 33, respect your husband. I think there's a lot of overlap there. Husbands are really, um, I mean, it's just loving your wife is the kind of thing Paul keeps on hitting over and over and over. So two commands I want to focus on. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Um, so the first one, wives, submit to your husbands. Paul t- mentions this twice. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, he says it elsewhere. Colossians 3, 15, 1 Peter 3, 1, Titus 2, 4. And, you know, in this day and age, this is not really a cool verse. I mean, this, especially as a guy, you know, I, 
I've talked about this before, and I always get a little nervous, you know, being a guy up here saying, wives, submit to your husbands, you know. I mean, part of me wishes I can, like, transform into a woman. That, that would raise a whole new set of questions. But, I mean, I, it's almost, it's, it would almost be better if, you know, a woman could kind of encourage women to do this. So, so I, I, I come at this a little bit nervous, a little, little nervous, talk, a guy saying, wives, submit to your husbands. I mean, it does sound kind of little, you know, little house in the prairie-ish. Let me... Um, let me clarify, though. If you read this passage through the lens of our own cultural context and the way our culture defines and scoffs at submission, then yeah, you're going to totally misunderstand what Paul is saying. We must read this passage in its own historical context and then see how it applies today. Look, Paul is not saying Wives, submit to your husbands because you are inferior to your man. Never says that. Ever. But here's the thing. In the ancient context, in the Greco-Roman environment that Paul's writing in, I don't know if you know this, but there's, there's a lot of uh, passages that look like Ephesians 5. They're called household codes is how people talk about them. And, and a lot of Greco-Roman philosophers and moral teachers, they would always, they would talk about how the household is to be run. Aristotle talks about it. Other first century philosophers talk about how the household is to be run. And they, they do say, all, all of these, they do say that the wife should be totally obedient and submissive to her husband because she's inferior. In fact, the fact that Paul addresses Wives, women, directly, wives, submit to your husbands, that is a mark of value. Because in all these other Greco-Roman household codes that were, you, know, you can read about, the wife was never addressed. It was simply the husband that was told, you need to subjugate your wife, you need to dominate your wife, you need to keep her in her place, you need to keep your children obedient, you need to you know, keep your slaves in their place. And it was just the big cheese that was you know, given all this direction about how they need to rule over the house with a heavy hand. Why? Because the household, according to Aristotle, exists for the benefit and pleasure and happiness of the husband. That's why the home exists, according to all these other Greco-Roman household codes. So when you consider that context, then we need to go back and read what Paul says here. Says here. Sorry. Um, in, in Paul's world, I mean, he lived in a culture that highly devalued women. I mean, you read some of these statements, Jews included, and it's shocking. In fact, one first century Philosopher says that the husband has the rule of his household by nature because the deliberative or reasoning faculty in women is inferior. Their intellect is inferior. That's why the husband needs to rule over her. You won't find a shred of that in the New Testament. Um, Josephus, first century Jewish writer, says the woman is in all things inferior to men, therefore let her be obedient to her husband. You won't find a shred of that in the New Testament. Another ancient writer says that the two best days in a woman's life are when somebody marries her and when he carries her body to the grave. Another Jewish writer, 100 years before Jesus, Better is the wickedness of a man than, the, than a woman who does good. That one's actually in the Roman Catholic canon, by the way, which is awkward. But um, uh, one of the reasons why I'm Protestant. Um, one ancient writer, uh, Philo, Philo is a first century Jewish philosopher. He actually, he does praise women. Um, he praises the wife of an emperor. He says that she's so smart. She's like intellectually male. Nice try. <laughs> it's not a compliment in case you missed it. <laughs> um, there was one discovery of a papyrus sheet of a guy who was traveling from Rome to Alexandria, Egypt. It was, it was actually dates back to 1 BC, just right around the birth of Christ. And he writes to his wife, his pregnant wife back at Rome, and he says this. He says, I am still in Alexandria. If you deliver the child before I come home, if it's a boy, keep it. But if it's a girl, discard it. In fact, the, the abandonment of 
children was very common in the ancient world. Sometimes it was a moral obligation to leave your child out for death, especially if it was a female. Contrast this with the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament opens up with a genealogy where Matthew goes out of his way to include a bunch of women in Jesus' genealogy. We, we learn about, uh, you know, the birth of John the Baptist where his mom, Elizabeth, you know, has more spiritual insight than her husband, Zacharias. You go, you go to Luke chapter 8 and you read about a, a bunch of women. Do you know this? A bunch of women that funded the ministry of Jesus. I mean, this, is, this, is, this blows me away. It says all these women financially supported Jesus and the disciples. How awkward is that? They show up at, you know, some restaurant and, you know, they eat their falafels and they, they get the, you know, check please, you know, and everybody's kind of like, I don't got any money. You got any money? Jesus is like, I'm homeless, man. I don't got any money, you know. And James and John are like, well, he told us to quit our fishing business. We don't got any money, you know. And Matthew's like, I got this. I'm like, man, we don't want your dirty money, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Judas is like, you know good. <laughs> and then a bunch of women, you know, I, you know, all right, Mary Magdalene steps up, got this, I got the, yeah, again, yes, I'm going to pay the bill here, you know. I mean, do you, do you know the, the value that that instills in women in a culture where they were tremendously devalued? Jesus says, I'm going to be supported by a bunch of women in a culture where that would, would have been absurd. After the resurrection of Jesus, a group of women Christ first appears to a bunch of women, and when they go tell the men, the men are like, no way, we can't believe that. That's a fairy tale. Throughout the book of Acts, Mary, the mother of John Mark, was a wealthy woman who owned a huge house in Jerusalem that became home base for the, for the early church in Jerusalem. Lydia was the first convert in Europe, a seller of purple, wealthy woman who started a church in, first church in Europe. Priscilla, usually named before her, wife, her husband Aquila, was a key church planter in the first century, planting churches in Turkey, Greece, Rome, in a time when travel was incredibly expensive and incredibly dangerous. Philip had a bunch of daughters who were called prophets. Phoebe was a rich woman who funded much of the early church mission. She was the one who delivered Paul's letter to of Rome, the book of Romans. She delivered it to the church at Rome and probably was the first one to read the book of Romans out loud in a congregation. Christianity, I mean, Christianity was like the, the women's liberation movement of the first century. Come back to Paul. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There is not a shred of inferiority in that statement. He never, ever says, women, because you're lesser than men, therefore submit. Why does he say submit? He says, as to the Lord. Submission here also, the way that the word is formed, it's, it's it means to subject oneself under. It, it implies a voluntary choice. Again, contrary to the Greco-Roman standards, Paul never says, husbands, you need to get your wives to submit. He rather has, addresses women with full dignity and honor and says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He says the same thing in Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In other words, a wife's submission to her husband is ultimately an act of submission to Jesus Christ. He's calling on wives to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, to follow Jesus, to pick up their crosses and walk with Christ. If Jesus doesn't submit to the Father, not my will but yours be done, and if Jesus doesn't give up his rights, at the cross, then yes, this doesn't make any sense. But through the cross and resurrection, Jesus took something like submission, which was looked down upon, and he ripped it inside out and made it a virtue, the pathway to glory according to Philippians 2. The cross is the place that makes this command real. So wives, your submission to your earthly husband is a precious way of worshiping your heavenly king who through every blood-spattering pound of the nail submitted to the Father out of his great love for you. You see, submission is an invitation into the heart of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus doesn't call 
on wives to do anything that he didn't himself do. Jesus doesn't call on wives to do something that he has not already done. And so I know that this command in, in the broader culture, you know, and is, oh, I can't believe Christians still talk about that stuff. No, no, no. Yeah, if, if you don't understand the death and resurrection of Jesus and the beauty of submission. By the way, what's the, you know, the, the, first, the verse prior to this says, you know, all people are to submit to everybody. There's not a single human on earth in Christ who doesn't have some sort of submission to another person. We are all to be submitted to one another. But there is something unique about a wife's submission to her husband as a participation in the submission of Christ and in devotion to him as king. Husbands, love your wives. All right. Um, This one's a little easier because I'm a husband, even though I fail at this like all the time. Um, uh, Paul shifts the focus to the husband. And, uh, you know, there's three times in this passage where it says, husbands, love your wives. This is something that Paul just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering. Husbands, love your wives. And again, if you compare this to other ancient contexts where they talk about the, the household codes, this would have been incredibly shocking. I mean, I just picture like some, you know, Greco-Roman person getting converted to Christianity and he's used to kind of running his household with a heavy hand and, 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 and ruling over it for the benefit of himself like Aristotle commanded him to. And all of a sudden now Paul's saying, you need to love your wife You don't dominate your wife. You love your wife. You give up your rights for the sake of your wife. That would have been incredibly shocking. Again, sometimes people look at this passage and they just, you know, nitpick the command to wives and they don't miss the radicality of a husband's undying devotion to his wife. It was fascinating. There are no prerequisites or conditions here. Paul never says, husbands, love your wives if... There is no if in agape love. Husbands, love your wife, even if she's not submissive, even if she's not respectful, even if she's not lovable. Why? Because Jesus loved you when you were not submissive, when you were not respectful, when you were not lovable. You see, the whole whole meaning of this command is broadcasted in the analogy as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? While we were yet enemies, Christ loved us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And we, husbands, love our wives because of Jesus. Once again, it just comes back to Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, I love, you know, the, um, uh, the church is often called the bride of Christ. I mean, the the marriage metaphor is often applied to and derived from God's love for his people, right? Especially in the Old Testament. We always see, you know, this analogy of God, you know, loving his people, Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. You know this. God is often portrayed as a husband and Israel is often portrayed as a wife. But what kind of wife? What kind of wife? A good one? Faithful, lovable? A sexually promiscuous wife who doesn't love her husband back. This is in, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, there's one book, in fact, if you want to turn there, Hosea, the book of Hosea. I, I think Hosea is, is the most beautiful, uh, challenging marriage book there is. It's not really about marriage, but it does say something very, I think, important about marriage. Because here, uh, you know, God often describes himself as the husband, the lover of Israel. Israel is the wayward wife and in Hosea, he calls Hosea, Hosea's a prophet, and, he's, and God's thinking, you know what, I, I want Hosea to actually experience the love that I have for my people. You may think, oh, that sounds cool, you know, I get, you know, get to participate in the love of God, yeah. Except when your people are like prostitutes, <laughs> and you're committed to them. And so in, in, in Hosea 1, I love this. He says, the Lord says to Hosea, this is right out of the gate. You know, that, you know Hosea is like fresh out of seminary, you know, ready to go preach the word. And, and all right, God, I'm ready to go. And he's like, okay, you ready? Ready? I'm ready. I'm ready, God. You ready? You ready, Hosea? I'm ready. Okay, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Missed that class in seminary. <laughs> go marry a whore, Hosea. That's, that's just what he says. 
I, I don't, you know, the book doesn't record Hosea's response, but can you, <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, sorry, God, you know, my, my, uh, uh, did, did I misunderstand you? <laughs> you want me to do what? I, like, God, I'm a holy man. I, I'm a prophet. I'm a pastor. This is going to destroy my testimony, God. I don't, you know, how's my wife going to leave Beth Moore studies when she's a whore? This isn't going to work, right? You know? Hosea, Hosea, <laughs> can I cut that? Is that, can we edit that one out? Um, um, <laughs> Hosea, God wants to invite Hosea into God's love. Not, not Oprah Winfrey love, not, not modern day falling in love, you know, not chick flicks, but God's chesed, covenant, faithful devotion to unlovable people. He's inviting Jose into that. So he goes and he finds a sexually promiscuous woman, I presume, a, a woman named Gomer, and he goes and he asks for a hand in marriage. He marries him. But it doesn't, we don't know much about their marriage, but we know it doesn't work out because in chapter 3, Hosea 3, he's not married to Gomer anymore. In fact, it says that she's not married to anybody. It says that, or let me, uh, Hosea 3 verse 1, Lord says to me, Lord said to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. And this has to be Gomer. For the analogy to work, it has to be Gomer, even though she's not named in chapter 3. So Hosea is commanded, go love Gomer again. She's been loved by another man. She's an adulteress. And so he goes and he marries her, and it says that he bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and three bushels of barley. He buys her. So I, we, we got to kind of piece this together. Why, why, why? Okay, he's not married to her anymore. She's an adulteress. She's kind of apparently has, has left Hosea, maybe slept around. Maybe she's bounced around from a couple men. And finally, finally, maybe one of her husbands, her men, sold her into slavery. It was, wouldn't be uncommon in that day, in Hosea's day, for a, for a husband to do that, to get sick of his adulterous wife and sell her to be a slave. You say, why do you think she's a slave? Hosea has to buy her. He purchases her. Now, slaves in this day and age, again, this is a really bad time in Israel, they would have been bought and sold for various reasons. Female slaves would have been sold to like, help out around the home, domestic duties, or they would have been bought for sexual services. But here's the thing. The average price for a slave in this time, 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver. Gomer, 15 shekels. Gomer, Gomer has a price tag around her neck that says half-priced whore. We don't know, we don't know why she was on sale. I mean, maybe her physical appearance wasn't all that cracked up. You know, maybe it wasn't all that great. Maybe her clothes were ragged and dirty. She probably smelled bad, you know. Maybe, be, maybe her body's like unfit, diseased, scarred. And so she's, she's getting, she, she just gets passed over one by one. People are, people are bidding on these slaves and, 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 and passing her over and saying, no, I want the one that looks, no, this one's a little more physically fit. No, no, I want to purchase, how much is her? Yeah, I'll take her. And, and she's just getting passed over one by one. You talk about feeling like you don't have any worth or value getting passed over one by one, one by one. And finally, she hears somebody bidding on her. You know, I picture Hosea with a bag of money, 15 shekels of silver in one hand and the heart of God in the other. And he starts bidding on Gomer. Gomer looks out. Here's a familiar voice, you know. Who, is that, that can't be. Is that, is that Hosea? Jose is bidding on, on this, this worthless product. I want that one. No, 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 not that one. Yeah, the one in the back row, the one with the muddy dress. Yeah, I want that one. No teeth? Yep, that's the one. The crowd begins to laugh and snicker. You know, it's probably a small village. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows the, hi the history. Yeah. And, and he's just he's bidding on Gomer and people. I mean, I... This isn't in a text, okay? But I, I mean, somebody had to have come to, come to Hosea and said, dude, do you realize who that is? This woman, she shamed you. She slept around on you. She, she doesn't love, she didn't love you then. What makes you think she's gonna love you now? And Hosea says, it's not about her. 
I want that one. You give me that one. That's my bride. You give me my wife. I will pay any price because God is devoted to me. Therefore, I am devoted to her. And him and Gomer get remarried. And this is just, this is just a small piece, a small snapshot of God's one-way love for us. It's not based on what we do, what we haven't done, but based on God and what he has done for us. So Hosea, you go marry this woman and you will know, you will experience what it is for me to be devoted to you. This is the type of love that Paul's talking about, man. Marriage is a tangible participation in and display of God's covenant relationship with his people. A healthy marriage begins and ends with two spouses being captivated, compelled, and enraptured by Jesus' one-way love for each other, for us, for our spouses. When two people are more captivated by that love, then they will be compelled to be committed to each other with the type of love that Paul is commanding us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your love for us, Lord. Um, we come before you, Lord, with uh, hopes of marriage, with healthy marriages, with broken marriages, with scars and battle wounds and pains and fears and joys. And marriage is such a complex web of life, God, and I pray that we would just clear aside the clutter and go back to the foundation and recognize your great love for us, Lord. I do pray that wives and aspiring wives would, out of obedience to Jesus, be submissive to their husbands because you were submissive to your Father. And God, I pray for the husbands, that we, that I, would be devoted to our wives in the same way that Hosea was devoted to Gomer. Jesus, we thank you for your great love in Christ's name.